Hey church, my name is Jason, one of the elders at Church in the Square. Let's meet one another uh, in God's Word. Romans chapter 1 verses 26 through 27 will be our primary text today. Continuing on in Romans, Romans chapter 1 verse uh, 26 and 27. Let me read this portion of scripture for us. I'll pray and then we will seek to understand what God has to say to us today. Romans 1, verse 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless act with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their heir. These are the very words of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are coming to your word. And so we thank you so very much that uh, we can come with confidence. We uh, come with humility. We come with a, an eagerness to hear from you. Uh, we, we desire to be shaped, to be corrected, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds as we come to your word. And I pray, Father, that you would bring unity, that you would help us to, to see and to know your heart in your word today, particularly because of the nature, the content of this particular passage um, is one that for many of us may just be an intellectual practice or exercise, but for others, this uh, is, is a deeply impactful passage as it relates to our own identity or the identity of friends and neighbors, brothers, sisters, colleagues. And so, Father, we, we come humbly to this text, but not because it is different than any other, uh, Father, but because uh, it is still your word and you are still speaking. And so, Father, we come contrite. I pray that you would help myself, help my friends, my brothers and sisters. Father, as we're tempted to uh, sort of build walls of defensiveness or, or desire not to hear from you today or to be sensitive to your leading, Father, would you correct us? Would you graciously uh, push us, uh, guide us to humility and to receiving from you today that we might become a church that is unified, that is peaceable, that is convicted and compassionate toward uh, our friends and neighbors. So we ask for your help in this today. As always, God, help me to be clear, help me to be responsible with your word, and may all of us as your people submit to your word today. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, in the late 1960s, the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village was one of the only places that gay men could gather freely and openly in public. Even still, it was a business that was largely controlled or strictly controlled by the mafia. And uh, this was created a less warm uh, than an, a, a less than warm environment for the patrons of the Stonewall Inn. Uh, historian Martin uh, Der, Dub, Duberman uh, notes the men who gathered there were routinely verbally disparaged and served watered down, even overpriced drinks. And they were constantly served drinks at the Stonewall Inn that had been cleaned in standing water. This lack of uh, care uh, led to a hepatitis epidemic that broke out amongst gay men in New York in the early months of 1969. 
In fact, up until 1966, the uh, New York State Liquor Authority could penalize and even shut down bars like the Stonewall for multiple reasons that were actually lawful. So police raids and constant pressure on many of these kinds of establishments was consistent, was routine. But even though by 1969, LGBTQ people were free to gather in places like the Stonewall and like bars, it was still incredibly challenging. In fact, in New York uh, at the time, they still had laws outlawing cross-dressing. So the mafia saw a financial opportunity, despite their vocal uh, disparagement and disregard of gay people, and this created a they created a seemingly a safe haven for gay men in particular to gather. So they paid off police, the mafia did. They blackmailed wealthy patrons. And harassment still continued, though, inside and outside of the bar for LGBTQ people until a massive raid took place at the Stonewall Inn in the early morning of June 28, 1969. Gay patrons who had been fed up for decades of mistreatment and disregard um, and even unlawful imprisonment, fed up with all of that, began to stand their ground. The mafia were so frustrated with the multi-day standoff that they began to try to burn down the bar and the police arrested dozens of people. This event is now known as the Stonewall Riots or the Stonewall Uprising. It's the birthplace of the modern LGBTQI plus rights movement. That means that lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, intersex people, and more find the inception of their civil liberty battle here in 1969 at the Stonewall Inn. It was the culmination and bubbling over of the mistreatment and marginalization that this particular people group and the various uh, subcultures of this people group experienced for decades. So though the challenges and milestones look different, LGBTQI uh, plus people are still in many battles for their human dignity and worth, as well as their inalienable rights as human beings to be recognized not only in this country, but in many countries. This includes the 2015 uh, SCOTUS ruling on marriage and June's ruling just last month on discrimination in the workplace. See, from the LGBTQI plus person's perspective, the Christian church stands in direct opposition with this progress. To be sure, there may be nuances in the Christian perspective, but by and large, it has been conservative Christians who have been the strongest force, not simply against uh, legal rulings, but LGBTQI plus people and persons specifically. Understandably, current opposition to legislation is consistently viewed to be just as damaging, just as oppressive as these events surrounding Stonewall in 1969. See, historically, the church has taken a clear stance against gay people. Not only have we generally viewed non-heterosexual attraction, sex, and unions as sinful, but we have done our very best to establish those ideas and ideals into law. Additionally, we have sought to uh, convert the same-sex attracted and non-binary to heterosexuality. This, this has been a part of the uh, work and the lobbying of the church, if you will, in sort of a spiritual context. 
This to many is not only the, the biblical model of righteousness, but it's also the way that many believe orderly society ought to function. This uh, conversation, or rather this conversion ideology, materialized just seven years after Stonewall in an organization called Exodus International. Their particular non-profit organization practiced what's called or what's known as gay conversion therapy. During its most influential years, Exodus International enjoyed the support of over 200 evangelical churches and organizations, as well as respected Christian researchers who validated the effects and the efforts of their labor. So despite though these impacts, the organization closed in 2013 and the founders apologized and even renounced conversion therapy as a process and as a practice in general. See, though the organization no longer exists though, there continues to be this mantra even uh, summarized in the idea that perhaps many of you have heard before, which is to pray the gay away. Many Christians believe that gay people should simply submit their desires to God, ask him to take away uh, any same-sex urges, or, or in other words, to make them heterosexual, and therefore when they become heterosexual, they will become once again pleasing in the sight of God. See, today we're coming to a portion of Scripture that speaks directly to this most divisive of issues of our day, human sexuality. And while the word of God is timeless, it speaks the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The word of God is also timely. It's timeless and it's timely, addressing the various situations, circumstances, and sins of our particular day. Therefore, we do not simply wonder as a matter of course, well, is this kind of behavior, this kind of action, is it sin or not? Just answer the question. But we ask the question as a matter of the heart. What is God up to here in this particular passage and in this general idea? So with this, this history and this context in mind, we come to Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, and we, we want to consider God's heart for his creation. We come to his word and we want to consider his heart for his creation. And in doing so, I'll attempt to answer a few questions. And from the outset, we should know this passage only answers a few questions. It doesn't answer all of our questions. First, we're at, we'll ask, what does the Bible teach or say about same-sex attraction and sex? But also, what does uh, sex and sexuality, why does it matter so much to God and, and his purposes in the world? And then lastly, uh, we will consider what, what does all of this mean? What's this mean for us as the people of God to live in light of God's heart in our particular time? So the first thing we must do, the first thing we must always do is go to God's word. What does the Bible say then about same-sex attraction and identity? We'll reflect, uh, we're reflecting on this, uh, not simply because it may be on our minds in the 21st century, but through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's on the Apostle Paul's mind. And so if it's on our mind in the 21st century, it's on the Apostle Paul's mind as he is writing to Rome in the first century. Therefore, we can discern that it is something that God cares deeply about in all times for all of his people. So let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their Women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, verse 27, gave 
up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their heir. If you remember, Paul is within a portion of the opening of his letter here in considering the wrath of God. Look, look again at verse 18. He told his readers that for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. From, from there, we considered how this wrath comes against those who suppress the truth and then exchange the truth of God for a liar, exchange the glory of God for a lie, for, for images of mortal men and reptiles and birds and, and creeping things, Paul says. So in short, what, what Paul is saying is that we've exchanged God who, who, is, who is true, who is eternal, who is immortal for something that is created, something he created to reflect his glory. So what Paul is talking about is idolatry, worshiping idols. And idolatry, if you remember, is centering our lives upon and glorifying anything other than God himself, because he's the only one who deserves that kind of veneration and adulation and attention. And one of the particular idols that Paul was concerned about when he's writing Rome is sex. In the first century, all manner of sexual sins were common, but Paul was likely responding to a particular kind of perversion, the practices of prostitution within worship ceremonies of false gods, and the thousands of women who were kept in temples for this particular practice. In verses 24 and 25, then, Paul condemns those who God gave up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. You see, sex is not meant to be central to identity and our lives. In other words, sex neither sets the agenda for our lives, nor is sexual pleasure and freedom the fullest expression of joy that we are to experience in this life or in the life to come. After all, there will be no sex in the age to come. In heaven, where we will experience the fullest and fullness of life with God, in, in God's presence himself, there's not going to be any sex. This is what Jesus even attested to in Matthew chapter 22. But I digress. Specifically, then Paul is speaking about the idolatry of sex as a whole, but in general, he is speaking about whenever we take an aspect of creation and worship and serve it rather than the creator. This is what verse 25, the latter half of that is making clear to us. So he's speaking about any and every type of idolatry. That means that the sin we'll consider today in verses 26 and 27 is a tree in a forest of immorality. This is not one above the rest. This is one within the whole. So any elevation of any type of sexual experience or identity is sinful. Paul explains this here as well as in many others of his epistles. This means for us, just to make sure that we set our hearts and our minds right as we approach this text, this means that heterosexual sex outside of marital union is sinful completely, full stop. But this also means that sex within marriage, which is not mutually beneficial and willful, is also sinful. See, heterosexual marriage is not a safeguard of holiness from sexual immorality. Only God's spirit through God's word can claim that kind of power. This is what Paul has established here as he approaches 
the content of verses 26 and 27. Here, Paul repeats a phrase that we read in verse 24. He says, look at it with me, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. So because they started worshiping creation and not the creator, the text says God gave them up. This is the second of three times. He'll say this in verse 24. He says this here in verse 26. And he'll say it again in verse 28, that God gives us over to these desires that we choose. If you recall from last week, this giving up is a natural consequence of our sin. If we want to have sexual pleasure, sexual freedom, be the centerpiece of our lives, God will allow that to happen. He will give it to us. In verse 24, God gives up the sinner to the lusts, to their lust. And here Paul says that he gives them up to dishonorable passions. These ideas are very much connected. He's not moving on to a whole new subject. The word for dishonorable and or shameful in verse 26 is a cognate of the word dishonoring in verse 24. So we are neither speaking about a lighter offense here in verse 26, nor a more egregious sin. We are speaking about a specific sin, which is equal in sinfulness to any underneath the broad category of sexual immorality and idolatry. Are you with me? So so what sin are we speaking about specifically? Well, Paul continues in verse 26, that, that latter half, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. In order to understand Paul's meaning here, two primary questions sort of rise from the surface off the the page from this particular verse that we have to ask and answer. The first is what specific relations is Paul talking about? What's specifically on his mind when he uses that kind of language? Secondly, so not only what relations is he referring to, but secondly, what does he mean by natural or contrary to nature? What does it mean that something is natural or contrary to nature? So with respect to relations, many argue along with author Matthew Vines that Paul could not have had in mind committed monogamous same-sex unions, marriage, or relationships uh, that, that, are, that are loving and gracious and long-term, which may come to our mind today. Instead, Paul was thinking only about and responding to deplorable acts like adults having sex with children, pederasty, gang rape, imbalance of power, like between slaves and masters, and other contexts of oppression. The argument is similar for the five other direct references to same-sex sin and relationship and action in the Bible. In Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, and also Leviticus 20, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy chapter 1. So in his book, God and the Gay Christian, Vines explains that monogamous same-sex union was not a normative practice in the first century Greco-Roman world. In fact, according to Vines, the the idea of sexual orientation as opposed to isolated urges or experiences would have been entirely unknown to the New Testament writers. Instead, what Paul had in mind when writing to Rome was the shameful denial of personal nature of a heterosexual person who in sin gave themselves over to excess, resulting in the participation of same-sex acts. So what Vine, Vines and others 
uh, other modern interpreters espouse is that when Paul talks about natural relations or, or nature, he is not speaking about human nature as a whole, but a particular person's nature. The, and these, these lesbian acts in verse 26, these lesbian experiences, were not the only ones that Paul has in mind. Look at verse 27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So Paul is speaking about a type of sexual idolatry, which is not limited to the acts of women with women, but also men are practicing a similar type of exchange. Yet Paul is actually a bit more specific and a bit more clear in verse 26 than he, in verse 27 than he was in verse 26. Notice he uses the language natural relations in verse 26, but here he adds in verse 27 with women. So what could be rightly deduced in 26 is actually explicit in verse 27. All of this to say in answering the two questions about relations and nature. First, vines and others are suggesting that the type of relations Paul has in mind are women and men lapsing in passions and giving themselves over to the excess of same-sex lust, leading to acts of rape, pederasty, and other expressions resulting from an imbalance of relational power. Second, with respect to the meaning of natural, this perspective states these are heterosexual women and heterosexual men indulging themselves in curiosity and passion. So Paul is not speaking about what is natural to everyone, but only what is natural to a particular person or a, a particular set of people, because Paul would not have known, uh, the, this view claims, would not have known about sexual orientation and, and certainly not loving and committed same-sex relationships. So this is a common and popular view today, which bridges the perceived gap between God's authority and authoritative and inerrant word and the inclusion of LGBTQI plus relationships and people and diverse sexual orientations. In short, what the view states is that natural relations are individualistic. And so the question for us as we come to the text, is, is that true? Is that, is that consistent with the whole nature of not only the scriptures, but of God's heart? Well, let's begin by looking at the original language. Then we'll move to more of first century historical view. In each of the three occurrences in verses 26 and 27 of the word nature or natural, that the word that is employed is the word physis. It's where we get our word for physics or physiology. So what's in mind when this word is employed is something that is native to a being or more broadly, a species which is given and received by their creator. It's not made by that being, but it is received from their creator. This is not about their agency. This is about what is, what is inborn. What is natural is something without artificial manipulation. And, and through the word's usage in antiquity, as well as its very rare usage in the New Testament, three leading etymologists explain that the stress of sexual faults in Romans 1, uh, 26 and 27, corresponds to the so-called Noahic commandments and rabbinic Judaism. But in both tenor and formation, physis is in every way Greek in Paul, the idea being that of violation of natural order. 
So while there were many different words that Paul could have used to speak about specific sins or specific sins of specific people, he chose a word which has a most natural reading of this holistic and collective nature, or rather the natural order of things in the world and of creation. Therefore, it is best to interpret and understand physis as the nature of humanity, not that of certain humans. As to whether or not Paul could have had monogamous or faithful same-sex relationships in mind, there's significant evidence to suggest it would have been impossible for Paul to not have such long-term unions, as well as the idea of sexual orientation in mind when he wrote Romans. Let me briefly overview some research from the time by uh, thinkers and, and researchers and scholars both inside and outside of the Christian church. First, Professor Thomas K. Hubbard, who edited the definitive collection of ancient texts on sexuality known as Homosexuality in Greece and Rome, a source book of basic documents. Here's, here's how he summarizes his findings in this large collection of original documents from the first century. The coincidence of such severity on the part of moralistic writers with the flagrant and open display of every form of homosexual behavior by Nero and other practitioners indicates a culture in which attitude about this issue increasingly defined one's ideological and moral position. In other words, he writes, homosexuality in this era may have ceased to be merely another practice of personal pleasure and began to be viewed as an essential and central category of personal identity, exclusive of and antithetical to heterosexual orientation. In other words, according to Hubbard, orientation is not a novel concept. It was understood in Paul's time. And then there's Lewis Crompton, a gay man and a pioneer in queer studies from the University of Nebraska. In his 650-page book, Homosexuality and Civilization, he explains, Some interpreters seeking to mitigate Paul's harshness have read the passage in Romans chapter 1 as condemning not homosexuals generally, but only heterosexual men and women who experimented with homosexuality. According to this interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at bona fide homosexuals and committed relationships, but such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstance. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any Jew or early Christian. So from Crompton's research, we see a further assurity um, and understand that Paul is not nuanced in Romans chapter 1, but he is being clear. Finally, one of, if not the leading New Testament scholar alive today, N.T. Wright, says this as a classicist. I have to say that when I read Plato's Symposium or when I read the accounts from the early Roman Empire of the practice of homosexuality, then it seems to me they knew just as much about it as we do. In particular, a point which is often missed, they knew a great deal about what people today would regard as longer-term, reasonably stable relations between two people of the same gender. 
This is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato. The idea that in Paul's day, it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men by older men or whatever. Of course, there was plenty of that as there is today, but it was by no means the only thing. In summary, in considering our two primary questions about relations and nature, the Greek word keeps a wide lens on all of humanity and what is natural through creation in the entire human race. Additionally, the ancient world was not ignorant in the least about ideas of sexual orientation and and same-sex loving and monogamous relationship. If Paul was speaking of specific individuals and certain same-sex sins, there would have been a much clearer and better way to communicate it. Therefore, what we must allow to settle into our biblical framework is that God has created human beings to be joined sexually in heterosexual union through covenant, which never makes sex central, but merely demonstrates sex as a gift, which celebrates the freedom and pleasure we find in God himself. In short, natural relations are universal. If this is the case, it ought to beg us the question. And perhaps in a more theological posture, not specifically what does the Bible say, but now more broadly about what does this tell us about God? Why does God care so much? Why does God care so much about the bedroom? Why does he care so much about sex? See, as a whole, when we think about sex, we think about it as an, in an individualistic kind of way. No matter our orientation, no matter our experience, no matter our spiritual disposition, we think about sex individualistically rather than through a gospel lens. Therefore, when we hear this kind of teaching from Romans chapter 1, it's alarming, it's unsettling to us. And we have perhaps a number of reactions depending on, on where our heart is on this thing, where our mind is on this thing. One reaction is that we may be disgusted by this particular kind of sin and temptation of our friends and neighbors, as if other unchosen sinful proclivities are less deplorable to God. See, we see sex through an individualistic kind of piety, particularly those who are heterosexual, looking down on others who are not uh, as they are. Secondly, another reaction may simply be to be grieved, perhaps grieved for the LGBTQI plus community by such a teaching, by such a callous perspective, likely even being embarrassed to hear this kind of message from your church or from God's word, that's just the idea in general. In other words, that we see sex through individualistic freedoms and could not, cannot fathom how something of God could be so constricting. Or lastly, another reaction may be that we might just be upset with God, that what we may be presumed to be his, his suffocating and intolerant brand of righteousness. See, we see sex individualistically because as a possession, as it's something that we own and not God, and therefore him speaking into that is challenging. And so each of us, no matter how we face this text, has an opportunity to grow and to submit and to learn, myself included. Before I address those concerns and responses, I'd like to give us a refreshed view of sexuality and human relationships through the the lens of the scriptures. Because you see, the gospel's richest reward is intimacy and all that comes with it. 
See, eternal union with Christ and therefore adoption into the family of God is the ultimate expression of Christ's atoning work in our lives. We are one with God now and forever as his people. And this intimacy helps us to understand our humanity. We are known best when we are known with. We are known best when we are known with, particularly with God and also with one another. Professor Rebecca McLaughlin explains that people sometimes say that the Bible condemns same-sex relationships. She says it does not. The Bible commands same-sex relationships as a level of intimacy, or rather at a level of intimacy, that Christians seldom reach. Jesus preached a gospel of radical intimacy with himself first and foremost, but through him also with each other. This intimacy is on Paul's mind than when he writes to the church in Corinth, a church that was deeply divided spiritually, deeply divided spiritual family. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one, for we partake of of the one bread. See, communion is meant to be this weekly reflection of our union and intimacy with God and one another. This is why it should feel so odd that, and, and create such angst in us that we have not been able to participate in the table together and we long to do it when we gather again. And in fact, Jesus is waiting to have this meal. He said he would not have this meal again until he has it with us in eternity. There's an intimacy to that. And the table, the table was meant to tell us the story of our union and intimacy with God and with one another. Intimacy is then at the heart of the gospel and is woven throughout the fabric of the life of the local church. McLaughlin goes on to say that friendship is not the consolation prize of those who fail to gain romantic love. Like marriage and like parenthood, friendship is another way in which God manifests an aspect of his love to us. This is not, I think it's important to know McLaughlin's story because this is not merely an intellectual exercise for her. See, her own journey towards marriage and motherhood consisted of same-sex attraction her entire life. And in fact, she says to this day, when she feels drawn outside of her marriage, as we all do from time to time, the pull, she says, is towards women. See, her commitment to her husband and marriage, she says, is out of obedience to God over personal emotions and self-preferences, and sexual preferences, rather. See, I believe what her story communicates is something that I've experienced and continue to learn and grow in in my own marriage. See, my friendship with my wife is infinitely more valuable to me than our sexual intimacy. The sexual intimacy actually is meant to celebrate and cultivate the, the covenantal intimacy that we have as friends, as husband and wife. She and I will have sex only in this life, but we will be friends forever. We will be brother and sister forever. Therefore, contrary to this swollen appetite that even the Christian church and our own subculture has with marriage and romantic infatuation and love. 
Marriage and sex are not the epicenter of human flourishing and intimacy. The church is. The church is. That's why marriage is actually meant to point us to the church. See, sex within marriage is one way of enjoying intimacy. To be sure, there is something unique in marriage, as there is something unique in friendship as well. And this unique role of marriage in God's story helps us to see why he cares so much about marriage in general and sex in particular. See, marriage is used from Genesis to Revelation as a primary illustration of the gospel. So let me, let me walk us through that from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 to Ephesians 5 to Revelation chapter 21. So we get a picture of how the entirety of scripture uses marriage as an illustration to point to something else. See, the idea of sexuality and marriage is introduced to us in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, we are made in the image of God, all of us, no matter what orientation, gender, or sexual expression, everyone is made in the image of God. However, the fidelity of this image is demonstrated in the complementary creation of male and female. See, by Genesis chapter 2, this complementarity is highlighted not only when God observed that it was not good for the man to be alone, which was more of a commentary about community and friendship than about singleness, but even more so when the writer of the book says this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So male and female, like and unlike, Complementary elements are joined together in intimate oneness. In writing to the church in Ephesus, Paul takes time to not only instruct married couples, but then he uses their union uh, and the uniqueness of their intimacy as husband and wife to teach the local church about Jesus and their identity as the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, now quoting Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And here's what Paul says. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Notice as Paul tries to teach, and, and is by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, teaching about the nature of marriage, we're not quite sure when he's speaking about husbands and wives and when he's speaking about Jesus and the church. This illustration and what the illustration is meant to point to are in such close proximity that when we look at a godly marriage, we are meant to be told about the nature of the gospel. See, marriage refers to Christ and the church, two opposing yet complementary beings who are made one. So in Genesis, it's male and female. In the New Testament, 
here specifically in Ephesians chapter 5, it's Christ in the church, like and unlike complementary elements joined in intimate oneness. Finally, the illustration of marriage makes its way all the way to John's apocalyptic conclusion of the biblical canon. He receives a vision of the day of the Lord, the return of the Son of God, that Jesus Christ will come and make heaven and earth one. Revelation chapter 21. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See, biblical marriage becomes the historic and even visible witness, which has been designed to prepare us to enjoy the union and intimate oneness of heaven and earth in the age to come. So in Genesis, it's male and female. In Ephesians, it is Christ and the church. In Revelation, it's heaven and earth, like and unlike, complementary elements joined together in intimate oneness. See, over and over again, we are meant to get, be given this picture of God's heart, of God's story, of God's character woven into the fabric of his creation. He is such a good God that he makes us even, whether we believe, whether we trust or not, whether we even get it or not, to be witnesses, signposts to his glory as his creation. See, God cares deeply about sex, sexual orientation, gender, and sexual expression in marriage because he has always intended to give us intimacy on his own terms. See, in our present day, it seems that there are only a couple of options open to us in this conversation. We can either side with our LGBTQI friends and plus friends and neighbors and labor with them for full affirmation personally and socially, or we can work against them in the spirit of the Exodus international ministry and praying the gay away movements. But the scriptures, I believe, give us a third way. We are not choosing between love and hate. Christians, the apostle John tells us, are known by their love. Choosing hate is not an option for us. We should not accept the false premise of our day, which presumes to disagree is to hate and to love is to agree. Rather, we follow the footsteps of Jesus Christ. See, when the religious leaders caught a woman in adultery, they brought her to Jesus. And we must make mention of the fact that these, these religious leaders only brought the woman who was caught in adultery and not the one with whom she was caught in the act. His absence is striking, but I digress. They wanted Jesus to condemn her and let her be stoned. Jesus famously says this in John chapter 8, verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Of course, no one could. All have sinned. They all leave. Jesus turns his attention to the woman in verses 10 and 11 in John 8. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where, where are they? 
Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus loves this woman, but he does not agree with her. He does not condemn her, but he tells her to sin no more. My friends, this is the third way. The way forward for the church in relationship with our LGBTQI plus friends and neighbors. So what does this look like? The first thing that it looks like is repentance. We need to repent individually and as a church because we have sinned in our lack of love and care and kindness towards our neighbors, towards our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. See, individually and corporately, we have some confessing to do. Personally, in learning about the Stonewall uprising and even seeing the marginalization of gay people today and homophobia in our country, you may think to yourself, well, they're sinning, so they deserve it. This is their consequence. They've done something wrong, so bad stuff should happen to them in their life. As if to suggest that any mistreatment of someone that receives, that, any, that someone receives is permissible simply because they are not submitting to God. Church, it is shameful how unwilling we are to extend grace and to show love and compassion to someone simply because we have determined by our own assessment that they lack sufficient righteousness. Shame on us. That's not the gospel. That's legalism. And that is demonic. If and when we do not see our gay friends and neighbors first and foremost through the lens of the image of God, we have cause to repent. The God of the Bible does not see you through your sin only. Therefore, you must not, I must not make this practice part of our habit as the people of God. There's also an invitation to repent today. If you've been willfully ignoring this aspect of God's desire and design for your life personally, because of sin, we are all born with misaligned and broken affections. And like any sin, the elevation of sexual identity is idolatry. That is, believing that, God's, that, that, that is believing that God's word should, we should submit our, to our sexual preferences, not the other way around. In other words, our sexual preferences should be submitted to God's word. When we exchange the creator for creation, making anything more central than God, we are given over to divine consequence and it will hurt us. So the first thing we need to do is repent, church. The second thing that we need to do is live with compassion. Artist Jackie Hill Perry writes about her own story of same-sex relationship and attraction in her book, Gay Girl and Good God. She writes, when a person once enslaved to their same-sex attraction becomes a believer, it can be difficult for them to learn how to identify themselves by another affection. The burden for same-sex attracted Christians when it comes to identity, is to renew the mind so that men and women begin to see themselves in light of who God has revealed himself to be so that they can glorify him in the ways he 
commanded. Hill Perry's journey was similar to the path of Professor Rosaria Butterfield, who explained in her book, the, the Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. In understanding myself as a sexual being, responding to Jesus, i.e. committing my life to Christ, meant not going backwards to my heterosexual past, but going forward to something entirely new. What both these women describe in incredible vulnerability is consistent with anyone who is tempted by same-sex urges, and especially those who are drawn toward living out this orientation, seeking righteousness in our sexuality, and learning to obey is laborious and spirit-filled work of obedience. Some in our immediate fellowship church and many in the greater church family regularly battle these temptations and we ought to be praying for them and encouraging them to not grow weary in doing good. This is how we foster intimacy, even in the local church, even in the midst of what all of us and what any of us might struggle with. It's through compassion. See, the people of God ought to extend the most compassion to the LGBTQI plus community more than anyone else on the planet. See, when I was discipling a gay couple in the course, over the course of many months, just a couple of years ago, I'll never forget when they looked at me. When we were looking at passages like this, when they looked at me and said, Jason, can you imagine if the Bible said that you needed to divorce your wife? If you needed to divorce Laura, like that was what you needed to do. And I confess to you, church, I had never lived with that kind of empathy in this conversation. I had never even attempted to take on that kind of compassion. And in conversation with them and friendship with them, I had to walk in repentance. I had to ask for forgiveness because what had been perhaps comfortably just a biblical conversation for me was missing my heart. And it broke my heart to realize the burden and the heaviness of this call in a particular person's life and, and any different kind of call because Jesus calls all of us to pick up our cross and to follow him. And yet something around this in our time is particularly laborious. See, as the church, especially those who are not tempted by same-sex urges, we must learn to live with compassion, not condemnation toward our gay friends and neighbors. In a very practical way, living with compassion means that we can be thankful and even advocate for the fair treatment of LGBTQI plus people under the law. For instance, though we may be grieved that any such legislation is necessary, we can be grateful that June SCOTUS ruling, because of that, that LGBTQI plus people are further protected legally from discrimination in the workplace. To be compassionate and kind means that we desire to see the image of God cultivated and fostered legally, appropriately, that someone would not have to go through discrimination, that we would love our neighbor as ourself. So first, we need to repent. We need to live. Secondly, with compassion. Thirdly, church, we need to live with conviction. These conclusions and implications that, that you've heard today, I, I trust by God's grace, by his spirit from Romans chapter one, verse 26 and 27. These are wildly unpopular in our day and they will only become more unpopular. 
this will not become more in vogue for a church to preach this kind of message and to submit to this kind of word. I realize that. In fact, few things, I think, threaten our experiential oneness as much as a body as these convictions about humanity and and identity and sexuality. We live within a diverse city in a pluralistic time. This is one of the reasons why, as an elder team, a couple of years ago when Church in the Square was beginning to put together the foundational documents of our church, decided challenge in a, in a challenging way, but I think in a, in a correct way, an appropriate way, to welcome members who do not see or say this the exact same way, who do not see or say this. They can affirm and understand, or rather acknowledge and understand that this is what the church sees and how we interpret the scriptures, and yet perhaps in their own consideration of the Bible, see and say it differently. But a word here about conviction and a word here about knowing. See, one of my great concerns when facing this subject biblically is confirmation bias. In other words, if based on your upbringing, perhaps conservatism and or personal views, you are glad to hear today's lesson. You are, if, if there, there's this sort of like boasting that can be welling up in you and that would be foolishness. We do not come to God's word to simply confirm what we already think and feel and desire. We come to submit equally. If based on your upbringing and perhaps progressivism and or your personal views, you, you may not have liked what you heard today. And, and instead, like a different interpretation, if simply, again, you're choosing the interpretation that already fits your perspective, you are being foolish as well. Just because someone uses the Bible or can use the Bible to say something does not mean that's what God's word says. Instead, in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 14, all of us should be fully convinced in our own mind. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that, that, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. So our response today should not be a personal assessment of, of agreement, right? About how do I fall in it? How do I fit in that? That I like this? That this fit what I already, already think? But a collective submission to God's word. Here's what we can't say today. Really loved that, Jason. Way to go. Way to stick it to those people. They need to know the truth. But what we can't also say, that's, that's evil. It's silly to speak that way. It's foolishness. But what's also an appropriate response is to say, no, I, I just don't think that I could ever follow a God or, or believe that about the Bible that says that about a people. We all come to submit, meaning we are not interested in an interpretation that matches our preconceived notions. Rather, we desire to understand the reading of the Bible, which is most faithful to the whole Bible and God's heart for humanity. And our conviction and unity is always going to be found in God and his word. So our protection is the local church. 
when the world is dividing over such an idea, when politics is dividing over such an idea, when families are splitting over such an idea, we come together choosing this third way of, of repentance, of uh, compassion and of conviction, and we come to God and his word together. See, Paul was writing to unify, not to divide. We are, church, please hear me. We are safest in God's will, hidden from his ultimate wrath under his substitutionary work in Christ. Christ's work does not merely help us gain access to the presence of God in the future, but we can enjoy fellowship and intimacy with him and with each other right now because of what, the, what Jesus did on the cross. That's the gospel's richest reward, intimacy, now and forever. Therefore, we can come to God's word and we should not look to validate ourselves one way or the other, but submit ourselves to him. See, God does not validate us. He redeems us. God does not appease us. He transforms us. All of us who have exchanged what is righteous for what is unrighteous, all of us who have exchanged creation and taken up creation rather than the creator, all of us who have taken on something that is feeble and broken for something that is immortal, invisible, and the only wise God. See, we are all those who God graciously does this work of redeeming and bringing us back from our idolatrous and broken affections and gives us a new heart. And to that, we say thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we need your help so much. Whether now we are in the middle of a personal bout of fear, of frustration, or of joy and adulation, of, of comfort, or fear. Father, I thank you that whatever my brothers and sisters are experiencing right now, whatever their story leading up to this moment, whatever their story from here on out, we thank you, God, that we get to be your church. We get to be your people and we get to submit to your word together. We are gonna be transformed together. We're gonna be renewed together. We're gonna be redeemed together. And so may we enjoy the intimacy now that we have just like Father, Son, and Spirit with you, our God, and as your people. So may that intimacy give us joy. Within that intimacy, may we repent of our sin. In that intimacy, may we have compassion on our friends and neighbors. In, in the middle of that intimacy, may we have conviction that is grounded in your gospel, in your identity, and in your word. Because, Father, this intimacy is something we will enjoy forever because of the work and gracious power of Jesus. So help us in this, God. Unify us in this, God. And it's for your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.